Hi, I'm Miss Jenny, and um, I survived my childhood. Now, I will tell you that before we begin, I'm going to be talking about domestic violence and child abuse, and there may be some triggers for some of you, but I think this is something that's really important to talk about. It seems like it's a subject that we talk about a lot, and yet we don't talk about it, um, and even I myself have done that for a long time it's all I talked about and then eventually I stopped talking about it and now I'm talking I think I need to talk about it again Um, so I've kind of come full circle because I'm not going to be talking about it the way I did when I was a younger person if you don't know well you probably don't because this is my first podcast but I'm actually 57 years old and I was raised by an abusive woman. My father wasn't abusive, and eventually, I think I want to talk about that a little bit too. But she was she was an abusive woman, and it left a a, a really deep scar on me, and it affected my relationships as an adult. And I was a, a, a battered wife, and. Um, you know, that's just kind of the circle of abuse. And so I want to talk about how I got through it and how I feel I made myself a healthier person and um, things that I did to try to help prevent things happening with my children. And even talk about how, despite the fact that I personally might not have done something to my children as a direct result of what my mother did to me indirectly through uh, a person that I was married to, my children are still kind of caught in that cycle of abuse and it's sad, but um, there's not a lot that I can do to change that because there's another person involved who has not taken responsibility for their actions. So um, anyway, that's that's just part of the story. But um, I I want to make it clear that, you know, the woman who was my mother, she was my mother, and I did love her in a way that was healthy for me. It was hard for me to come to that place where I understood what was going on with her, and I could accept her as an, as me, as an adult, um... And just really how sad her life ended up in the end. But as I go and I talk about her, you'll see that, you know, she's not, she wasn't all bad. There were some things that I learned from her that she taught me in a way that was better than anybody else could have done. So, you know, I'm going to be fair, but in the end, um, she's passed away now. So the interesting thing was, you know, I spent a lot of time in my childhood crying over the way I was raised and the way I was being treated and how unfair life was for me. And then as a young adult having issues with my adult relationships and all that ugliness, you know, crying over that and blaming her for that. And, um, just trying to deal with why do I keep getting myself into this kind of a situation And then finally coming to the realization that she had an untreated mental illness, which came out um, really, really drastically after my father died. But I I knew before that that 
there was something wrong with her and um, it just became more evident to everybody else after he passed away but um, one of the things I'm going to tell you you know right up front is um, there was a time in my young adulthood and we were arguing and she was being nasty and I didn't like what she was saying to me and I said something to her that probably wasn't appropriate but at the time I felt it was true and that was that she was going to die alone and kind of in a way it did happen because my dad died first and um she had alienated so many people in her life that she really did spend a lot of time alone for the last eight years of her life um but when her life really did come to an end I I was actually there with her when she passed away and the interesting thing is that you know I had mentioned that I cried a lot and I mourned a lot Um, which is something that I want to touch on eventually too, that I did actually mourn the loss of my mother long before she passed away. Or I guess I mourned the fact that I never really had a mother or what I thought should be a a decent mother that I, I guess, you know, I deserved, which I think every child deserves decent parenting. But my philosophical or spiritual look at how things are and why my life has been the way that it is that explains in a way that I can understand and accept the things that happened to me that weren't right so when she died I was there with her and I can tell you I have not shed a tear for her at the time that she died or since then she's been gone for a while now a few years and um it's not because I have no feeling and it part of it is what I explained before that I mourned not having a decent mother but the other part of it is I really wasn't sad that she died and that's I hope that doesn't sound horrible because I don't intend for it to sound horrible it's just that by the time she passed away I had come to the understanding that she had a lot of if you will um, demons tormenting her because she was because she was mentally ill um you know, she was scared all the time. She was always unhappy. She was always ready to fight and she was living a miserable life. And so in my spiritual, my spiritual belief is that if, you know, what I believe is true, then she no longer has this thing tormenting her any longer. Now she's got a whole, she's a whole person and she's, um, been healed you know, and, and truly that's what I would ultimately wish for her. Unfortunately, it didn't happen while I was alive, but interestingly, I saw a glimpse of it, uh, in the month before that she passed away. My mom, um, she used to drink when she was younger and she quit drinking when I was 10 years old. But as far as I was concerned, she was like what you would call a dry drunk. I mean, she still acted like an alcoholic, um, but she didn't drink anymore. And she was, um, very, very, very against, uh, drug abuse. And I mean, any kind of prescriptions that she got, you know, she, she would always be worried about being addicted to them. And so she was sick and in the hospital for the last month. And eventually they put her on morphine, which if she was going to recover, she never would have taken it because we know that morphine is an addictive drug. But what was so interesting about this is when she went into the hospital before they put her on this medication um she was violent even with the people in the hospital one of the nurses um 
had said to me, my mother grabbed her hand and she thought she was going to crush her hand. She grabbed her hand so hard and she was kind of shocked at the amount of strength that my mother had because she looked like a frail little old lady by this point. You know, she couldn't walk very well and she just really didn't look like she had that kind of strength. But, you know, she kind of hurt that lady. Well, anyway, after they gave her the morphine, she was a completely different person. I'd never seen my mother like this. The, The nurse that explained this to me, she came in and my mom was like patting her face and saying nice things to her. And Um, everybody who came in, she's honeying and sweetieing them. And just, I mean, she was completely different. Not the woman that I knew, um, which is kind of a glimpse, I think, into what was missing in my mother's life. Whatever that morphine did for her, it, it replaced something that was missing or off balance in her, um, which is kind of a scary thought when you think about it, like you know, it made me, for a split second, I'm almost afraid to say it, because it's not a good thing, but would my mother have been a better mother if she was a heroin addict? I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, but she definitely needed to be medicated with something, and she wasn't, and because of that, she really was out of control a lot of the time, out of control of herself, and she would get into these horrible, horrible rages, and, um, you know, I just have memories of of her, even, you know, that's what my, my deepest, most earliest memories of, are of her being violent, not always towards me, even just towards things. So for example, my sister is two years older than me. So I would have been three or four years old when this happened. And apparently they were trying to potty train my sister and I don't know the technique that they used. I was obviously very, very little at the time, but things apparently weren't working out very well. And my mother flew into a rage and she took the potty chair and back then potty chairs, this was in the sixties, they were made out of wood and and it might've even been older than that. It might've been a potty chair that had been passed around, you know, as people had their children. So I don't know. I just know that it was a wooden potty chair that they were using to try to get my sister to learn how to use potty and whatever happened my mother took that that potty chair and just smashed it to pieces in the bathtub you know and obviously it was enough to terrify me because that's how she was even with little children you know she just was she would snap so that's what I grew up with and it stayed that way for me until I was, uh, I'm going to say 15. I think I was 15, 14, 14 or 15. And a friend of mine who knew what was going on in my house, I had seen me after I had gotten a very severe beating and, um, called the police and reported my mother. And so that kind of put the fear of God in her. And this was in, by now in the seventies, like the mid to late seventies. So People were becoming more and more aware and reacting. I'll say society was starting to react to the things, you know, domestic violence and things that were happening in the household. Um, you know, so the, the laws were still not as strict as they were. Uh, social services wasn't as inclined to take children out of the home as they are now. Um, you know, so, but somebody did come and visit it. I, 
think a police officer came and, um, you know, I was at an age too, where I was starting to fight back. I was getting tired of being beat on and just supposed to be taking it because that's what was expected. Um, so I started fighting back, but, um, they did send somebody in to counsel the family and that really didn't work out very well. You know, I, I don't know why that is, you know, if it was because, um, the understanding of the dynamics of abusive people maybe wasn't clearly understood at the time, but I just know that there was more turmoil in the house afterwards. I wasn't getting hit and beaten, but I was still suffering from the verbal abuse and you know that the, the two go hand in hand. There's always that verbal battering that comes along with the physical battering. Sometimes, you know, there's more verbal than physical. And, you know, I guess eventually I'll talk about that too. But anyway, um, so we stopped that. But I had also been, and she didn't know this, seeing somebody at school um, a counselor and you know they were like well you have to learn how to disassociate when your mother starts behaving a certain way then you should just walk away well, that's all fine and good on the playground but I can tell you right now if I walked away from my mother she'd grab me by my hair and throw me down on the ground that was not going to work and that was really bad advice to give somebody uh, you know a child but things things were different then you know now um authorities will come and help a child because you really are very helpless in a situation where you're in a situation where you know an authority figure and somebody with power and money and experience a lot of other things um, has complete control over everything not just your physical well-being but you know where do you live your clothes your food your survival, your, really your survival. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I titled this, I survived childhood because I did. Um, anyway, so I'm going to start with that little introduction. Um, and just to let you know that I may or may not have other stories. I I don't know how graphic I'm going to get, but my main purpose for this is to start to get people to talk about what happened to them, sharing experiences, and maybe listening to me and where I'm at now, because I am much better. Um, I'm much better now, but uh, I want people to feel like they can they can get better. They can stop the pattern. They can start looking for the red flags to let them know what it was that attracted them to that person. Maybe it was some kind of unhealthy (laughs) pattern or thing. I hope not, you know, but it really was like that for me. And I'll go into that, I guess, another time too, how the cycle continues. Uh, Anyway, I'm Miss Jenny. I appreciate you listening this long and I will get back to you as soon as I can and talk about more of what happened to me as a child and how I dealt with it growing up and finally becoming an adult and just know that there is hope for you and uh, God bless everybody and 
If you have any questions, please, you can send me messages. I, I will do the best that I can to help you or answer your questions. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you again soon. Hello, and welcome back. And if you're new here, welcome for the first time. I hope that you enjoy this podcast, the story that I'm going to tell you about. And this one is about Evelyn Collin and um, what happened to her and her family really didn't know for quite a while what had happened to her. And she was, well, she was a formerly unidentified American teenager from New Jersey who was found murdered and dismembered in three suitcases along with her unborn daughter on December 20th, 1976. And they nicknamed her Beth Doe because they didn't know who she was. And she was found in Whitehaven, Pennsylvania. The brutality of her crime, the fact that she was pregnant when she was killed, and the length of time that she remained unidentified created national attention. After isotope analysis was conducted in 2007, it was believed that she was an immigrant from Central Europe, from a Central European country. In 2019, it was announced police were considering the possibility that the victim had been a runaway foster child who was last known to be in New York, although the person in question was later located alive and further investigated that the girl was, you know, she was still alive. So on March 31st, 2021, so that wasn't very long ago, um, it was identified that she was a 15-year-old Evelyn Cohen of New Jersey City, uh, excuse me, of Jersey City in New Jersey. In addition, um, the identity of her alleged killer, Louise Sierra, was made public after charges were filed. Um, so when she was discovered, the victim, who had been carrying a nine-month female fetus, and that's an important detail that the baby was a little girl, she had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot in the neck by an unknown person. Her body was then dismembered with a serrated blade, and the gunshot wound had occurred post-mortem. Her nose, breasts, and ears had been severed and have been found. Um, excuse me, they had never been found, and the dismemberment was described to be unlike that of a surgeon, but not haphazard. Potter Parts of her body and that of her unborn daughter had been placed into three suitcases, uh, two of which were striped with red, blue, and white, and the other one was tan with a plaid design. They were of a vinyl material and were all the same size, and it was evident that the suitcases had been spray-painted black at some point, and their handles had been severed. To dispose of the body, the suitcases were thrown over a bridge or off a bridge over the Lehigh River in Whitehaven, Pennsylvania, along Interstate 80. It's believed that the suitcases had been thrown out of a vehicle traveling west. The killer had most likely intended to have the suitcases land in the water below to lessen the chance of their being found. However, two of the suitcases had landed in the woods 20 feet from the river, and the third that contained the head and the fetus was found on the riverbank. Having fallen approximately 300 feet, two of the suitcases had opened and parts of the body had emerged. The head, the fetus, and the two halves of the 
torso were exposed. Other evidence included straw and packing foam, as well as a bedspread that was waterlogged with fragments of a newspaper that had been used to wrap parts of the body. The newspaper was later determined to have been the New York Sunday from September 26, 1976, and was linked to the northern part of New Jersey. The bedspread was reddish-orange in color with yellow and pink embroidered flowers, and it was a Chanel uh, fabric. The body was removed by authorities and transported in plastic bags to nearby um, Ned and Hewton Hospital for examination. After a three-hour autopsy on December 23, 1976, it was determined that she was a white woman in her late teens or early 20s, However, her identity could not be established, and the cause of death was determined to be strangulation, although she had been shot in the neck as well. Beth Doe was between 4 feet 11 and 5 feet 4 inches tall, and she weighed about 140 to 150 pounds due to her pregnancy. So, taking into consideration that she was 9 months pregnant, she really wasn't a, a heavy girl. She, she was just very, very, very pregnant. Her hair, which was shoulder length, was an undyed dark brown, and the medical examiner determined that she was a type O blood. She had some distinctive markings on her body. She had a 2-6 to six inch scar that was visible above one of her heels, and two moles on her face, one above her left eye and one on her left cheek that may have developed during her pregnancy. Before coming, becoming a teen, some of her molars had been extra extracted, and she had received fillings in her teeth. She had no false teeth. And despite the evidence of previous dental care, she had likely not seen a dentist in some time as she was suffering from severe tooth decay. One of her front incisors had a visible fracture, which was noted to likely have caused severe pain. And it was believed that she was probably born in a Europe in Europe and moved to the United States before reaching her teen years as examined of her tooth enamel indicated. An initial anthropological examination indicated that she may have originated from Serbia or Croatia. Isotope tested was, testing was conducted on her hair, teeth, and bones. She had lived in the United States for five to ten years and most likely resided in Tennessee or a nearby state. Examination on the unborn girl indicated that the child had gestated while the victim was in the southeastern part of the country. So that's fascinating that they could get all that information. Um, okay, so after the body was found, the victim was fingerprinted, her teeth were examined and recorded on a dental chart. Missing persons reports throughout the United States and Canada were compared to the victim but were excluded. The medical examiner noted that a number of a set of numbers had been written on the victim's body. The ink, believed to have been from a pen, was on the left palm of the victim, indicating that she was right-handed if she had indeed written them herself. And the writing consisted of the letters WSR and the number 4 or 5, followed by 4 or 7. Her fingerprints were submitted to the FBI, but they didn't match anyone in the national database. She remained unidentified. A sketch was made, and the public was asked for assistance. This resulted in very few solid leads. Information about the case was subsequently published across the country to generate leads. 
1983, the body was buried after the victim remained unidentified for a number of years. In 2007, her remains were exhumed to obtain additional forensic evidence and to create new facial reconstruction. The National Center for Missing and Exploiting Children released um, two reconstructions, the latest in May of 2015. Investigators remained optimistic about identifying the remains and solving the murder, and there were several women that had been excluded as possible identities, um, probably close to 10 or 12 maybe. In December of 2019, the Pennsylvania State Police announced a possible connection between Beth Doe and Madeline Maggie Cruz. A tip was submitted to the police by an individual who had gone to school with Cruz and saw a resemblance to the reconstructions of Beth Doe. She'd spent time in Massachusetts cities of Lenox and uh, Framingham. In Framingham, she resided with a foster family. Around 1974, at approximate age of 16, she had run away to Terrytown with her foster sister, returned after a week. In the summer of 1976, she called a friend to request money, claiming that she was pregnant, and she was never heard from again until the media reported the potential link to Beth Doe. Later that month, police confirmed that Cruz was alive and well, and frequently and was subsequently eliminated as a potential identity. Oh, so how do we know who this person is? Well, here's what happened. Familial DNA eventually led investors, investigators to Louise, Louis, Louis, Colon Jr., Evelyn Colon's nephew. Colon's identity was released on March 31st, 2021, so just a few months ago, really. She was 15 at the time that she was allegedly murdered by who was uh, Louis, Louis Sierra, who was 19 at the time. Sierra is subsequently charged with the victim's murder. At the time of his arrest, he was residing in Ozone Park, New York, and he was 63 years old. He was extradited back to Pennsylvania, and he first appeared in court on April 28th. At the time of her murder, Cologne, who was of Puerto Rican origin, was dating Sierra, the father of her unborn, and the father of her unborn child in Jersey City. Due to her pregnancy, Cologne's parents recently had allowed her to move into an apartment with Sierra, who had also previously been the Cologne's next-door neighbor. So they kind of knew this guy. And one day, Cologne contacted her mother saying that she wasn't feeling well and asked her mother to bring her soup. But when her mother arrived, nobody was there. Neighbors told her family that she and Sierra had moved away. And in January of 1977, the family received a letter in Spanish from Sierra, stamped from Connecticut, telling them that she had given birth to a baby boy and not to worry because she would contact them if she needed anything. So he never even knew the sex of the baby. Baby was a little girl, if you remember. Colin's family initially didn't report her missing because, according to her brother, Louise Cullen, they thought that she was safe with Sierra. After a few years of no contact, they attempted to report her disappearance, but due to the letter, police refused to file a report, which, is, you know, that kind of bothers me because the letter was written in Spanish. I don't know. It doesn't say that she was able to speak and read and write Spanish, but she was obviously European. She, she wasn't from a Spanish 
Spanish-speaking country, so that letter, you know, wasn't written by him, and it should have been considered suspicious at the at the start of things. So I don't think that was the right thing to do. But anyway, by the time uh, Colin was identified, both her parents had died. So that's that's really sad. They never knew what happened to their daughter. She had just disappeared, and they thought that she was safe, and they'd never met their grandchild or granddaughter, of course, because she wasn't safe either. Um, and they never really knew what happened. That That's really, really sad. But all these years later, they finally did figure out who murdered her. And um, since this is so recent, I'm sure that he's still incarcerated waiting for his sentencing, which doesn't really look too good because they have DNA evidence. So another sad story about a girl who was a child, but also a domestic partner that ended in tragedy. Um, that's the end of this story for now. Maybe later on we'll find out what the sentencing was for Sierra, but at, at this point we're just waiting to see. Um, I do hope that everybody stays safe, and I will talk to you again. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, if you're here for the first time, thank you for stopping by to listen. And so today we're going to talk about head and nest bomb. And uh, this case happened in, let me think here. Um, I'm not exactly sure when this case actually went into the public eye, but um, we'll get into more details about this. But it was in 1987 when Lisa Steinberg was murdered, and we're going to talk about her parents. I'm going to put that in quotation marks because there are some details regarding that. Um, but my personal thought on this, what was going on at the time. So I was actually, by the time it was televised, um, in the beginnings of my own domestic violence relationship that I had talked about earlier in my first podcast and didn't even know yet that I was in a domestic a situation where I was being abused. But there was a lot of comments in various ways about who was responsible. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit more, too, as we get into this podcast. But I can remember two things going through my head as I watched this on TV. And the first was that I couldn't believe a mother would do what Hedda did, which we'll talk about, of course. And also just seeing her on TV and knowing the age that she was and thinking, my God, she looks so old, but there's a reason for all of that. And so we're going to talk about, um, Hedda Nussbaum and how she fits into this case and what she had done with her life and a couple other details. And we're also going to talk about, um, Joel Steinberg, who was the other parent involved. So let's just get started. Hedda, she was born 
August 8th, 1942, she's an American woman who was um, a parent for a six-year-old girl named Lisa, who died of physical abuse in 1987. The death of the girl, Lisa Steinberg, sparked a controversial trial and media frenzy. The legal case was one of the first to be televised gavel to gavel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Supporters characterized Nesbaum as a victim of horrific domestic abuse at the hands of her live-in partner, Joel Steinberg. And cr- critics suggest that she was a consensual part of, in a sadomasochistic relationship and an unprosecuted co and an unprosecuted co-conspirator in the young girl's death. Now I'm going to let you decide on that. Since then, I'll tell you at the end what my more recent thoughts are. So, before meeting Joel Steinberg in 1975, Hedda Nesbaum had been an editor and an author of children's books at Random House Publishers. And before that, at Appleton Century Croft, Steinberg, Joel Steinberg, was a defense attorney who sometimes handled adoption cases. Beginning in 1976, Nesbaum and Steinberg lived together in a brownstone apartment in New York City's Greenwich Village. Her 1977 book, Plants Do Amazing Things, was dedicated in part to, quote, Joel, my everyday inspiration. Due to Nesbaum's occasionally obvious bruises and other injuries, friends and, friends and colleagues suspected that Nesbaum was the victim of domestic violence. Later's neighbor, oh, brother, neighbors later stated to police that they believed that Nesbaum and Steinberg were active participants in a some kind of a sexual sadomasochistic game. Uh, friends occasionally offered to help Nesbaum, but she declined their offers of intervention or aid and refused to implicate Steinberg. Um, now, this part I find really interesting because she was showing obvious signs of, um, you know, abuse. And I'm thinking that people kind of came to the conclusion that she was in this sadomasochistic lifestyle um, because she refused to get help but you have to remember now we know more and people who are in a situation where they're being abused a lot of times will refuse help and refuse to press charges against their abusers so I think that's actually what was going on at the time when um, people were having these other kinds of thoughts about her they just didn't recognize what was happening and so they rationalized in their mind that she was into some kind of um, sadism and masochism. Anyway, after she had had extended absences from work, Random House put Nesbaum on consulting editor status in 1982. In 1981, after dubious legal circumstances, Nesbaum and Steinberg took custody of an infant girl that they named Lisa. The little girl's birth mother had paid Steinberg a $500 legal fee to place the child with a Roman Catholic family. Both Nesbaum and Steinberg were Jewish. So something right there is a sign that wasn't exactly what it was supposed to be. Under similar circumstances, Nesbaum and Steinberg later took in a toddler that they named Mitchell, a little boy, and the couple ne- never legally adopted either child. 
Hmm. There we go. So, in her 2005 book, Surviving Intimate Terrorism, Nussbaum argued that her denial of the danger she and her children lived in was typical of some chronically maltreated persons, i.e. battered person syndrome. Nussbaum claimed that she fled from the home six times only to later return. That is also typical. She had like all the classic signs of a battered person, but you know, nobody really recognized it at the time that this all happened. Nesbaum mentions the medical theory that trauma, especially prolonged trauma, can elicit the body's production of opioids that produce mental and physical numbness. She also suggests that her numbness further reduced her ability to think and act clearly akin to Stockholm Syndrome, a mental state where the victims identify with their abusers. And I totally agree with this. And if you start listening to people who are survived, you hear it referred to as trauma bonding. That's what they're calling it nowadays, trauma bonding. It's, it, it's, it seems illogical to the person who's on the outside looking in, but it really does happen. You become bonded to the person who's abusing you. So according to initial police reports on November 1st, 1987, around 7 p.m., Steinberg rendered Lisa unconscious with a severe blow to the head. Nesbaum remained alone with the dying child for roughly 10 hours, failing to notify police or medical personnel. Steinberg departed and returned several times and was sometimes freebasing crack cocaine. According to initial police reports, Nesbaum didn't notify authorities because she believed that Steinberg had supernatural healing powers. Okay. At roughly 6 a.m. the next morning, Lisa stopped breathing, and shortly thereafter, Steinberg dialed 911 at Nesbaum's urging. After Lisa's death, Mitchell, the little boy, was discovered in squalid condition. The child's birth mother, Nicole Smeagol, had waived her parental rights. However, since it was not a legal adoption, Smeagol was ultimately granted custody of her son, so he escaped he escaped whatever was going on in that house. When authorities learned of Lisa's death, they initially charged both Nesbaum and Steinberg with complicity. In the course of the investigation, however, charters were later dropped against Nesbaum, which well, I'll tell you at the end. She agreed to testify against Steinberg, and medical examination revealed that Nesbaum was anemic, malnourished, and suffered from broken bones and chronic infections. With these findings, authorities determined that Nesbaum was physically incapable of seriously wounding Lisa. Nesbaum's courtroom testimony against Steinberg earned substantial media attention, due in part to her face showing obvious evidence of physical trauma. There were also indications, as Nesbaum testified in court, that Lisa had been sexually abused by people outside of her immediate family. During the trial, medical experts testified while Lisa's injuries were severe, she would have most certainly survived if she had gotten prompt medical treatment. Steinberg was convicted on charges of first-degree manslaughter. After serving 16 years in the Southport Correctional Facility, where he was held in protective custody, of course, Steinberg was released on parole in 2004 and got a job in construction. So obviously he's not allowed to be a lawyer anymore, which is probably a really good thing. Um, so... I don't know, you know, he, he refuses to talk about this, too. There's some other places where I had looked him up, and I don't want to give him too much in this um, 
in this podcast, but, you know, he seems like he's pretty non-remorseful, I'll just put it that way. So, going back to Hedda, in the years following Lisa's death, Nussbaum worked to rebuild her life and had numerous reconstructive plastic surgeries. She also co-facilitated a support group for battered women about eight years for about eight years, and she later worked as a paralegal for an organization that assisted battered women. In 1995, Nesbaum began giving lectures about abuse at colleges and shelters. However, when Steinberg was released from prison, she receded from the public attention until the publication of a book a year and a half later. Uh, and I, I believe that really what, what she's done is during this time when Steinberg was in prison, she did everything that she could to assist with battered women, but felt that she had to go to, into hiding because she didn't want Steinberg to find her. That's what, what my thought is on that. Um, so this, this case polarized feminist scholars and activists. Some saw Nesbaum as the archetype victim of domestic violence, whose actions were controlled and restricted not only by her abusive partner, but by culture at large that denies the seriousness of abuse in the home. Other leading fe feminists, notably Susan Brown Miller, suggested that while Nesbaum suffered violence from her partner, she should have also shared culpability for Lisa's death. So, my feelings about Head and Nesbaum and situations in general, where it, where there's a battered wife and a battered child, which I, I think that's actually a very common thing that it's not just the wife, but a lot of times there's also children, or a child or children, um, who are also targeted when there's an abusive person in a household. And, and I just said wife, but I, I'm going to correct that right now to partner because we know that females can also be abusive and can abuse men, that, that it's more commonly documented that women are more likely to be abused, but women can be abusive. And there's a phenomenon when we start talking about abused men. So anyway, that's a topic for another podcast, but just to notate that there, that it's not always just one person in the home that's being abused is, is the point of my com comment. So the, where my feelings get when my feelings get conflicted and having gone through what Hedda w went through maybe not to the extreme because she's actually still has a lot of deformity in her face and um, some of the other sources that I looked at her her eye one of her eyes continuously just weeps you know she's not crying but her eye leaks tears um, and, and that's a permanent thing for her that's how bad, badly she was beaten by Joel Steinberg. Um, just, you know, like, I am conflicted. I can't say 100% that she should have been held accountable because of the severity of her situation and what happened in her brain as a result of this constant abuse. However, I also feel like 
we're all responsible for the children. And to me, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I keep going back and forth in this. I'm not in an abusive relationship right now. So I, you know, my thoughts are a lot clearer than they were back then. And I just, sometimes I think that I'll say punishment. Punishment is part of the treatment. Punishment, so she should have been held accountable. I don't necessarily think she should have gone to jail, but I, because she wouldn't get any help in jail. And I just don't think that our penal system is really prepared for that. We can't, we throw everybody in jail right now for drug charges and we're not doing anything in the jails to help them. So why, you know, would we help? Why would we think that a person who's been abused and ended up being culpable for a crime that they didn't maybe naturally actually commit but were there um, and didn't do anything, I don't think that somebody who is in a situation like this is going to get help in jail. I really don't. But I do think that if we hold somebody like Hedda responsible, okay, in a therapeutic sense, I guess is the best way to say it. In other words, like if we put her on some kind of probation, didn't put her in jail, but part of her stipulations of her probation would be to require her to get some kind of therapy and, you know, require her to stay away from the abuser, which we don't do. You know, we never, ever do that. We never require the victim to stay away from the abuser. And that's probably constitutionally wrong but taking into account by her own admission she went she left six times and went back that's part of the dynamics of an abused spouse is the inability to separate yourself from the person who's abusing you so I mean, I don't know the legalities behind forcing somebody to do that. But what I do know is, and they made this very clear to me, I did get a protective order against my abuser. And it was it, they told me in court that if, if I violate that protective order, then it nullifies the protective order. You see what I'm saying? So that, that's kind of where my thoughts are coming from is that there needs to be something to kind of force the victim away from from the abuser so that they can clear their head out and start getting some kind of help um and then in this particular case there was so much attention to Hedda and granted she she did change things her case changed a lot of things for women um as far as giving our society the knowledge of battered women they called it battered women syndrome at the time it's really battered persons but um and then of course Joel got his attention because he was the perpetrator and it's almost like Lisa was forgotten or she's a side note in this case it's really kind of sad that there was so much focus on the the two people the two adults who were responsible for her um that Lisa was just kind of like the catalyst bringing attention to what was going on it's, it's really sad but that little girl did lose her life um she was not 
uh, her, her adoption case was not handled the way it should have been. And um, to the best of my knowledge, there was no accountability for that other than uh, Joel losing his, uh, his lawyer's license. So, I, I don't know, there's just so many things. But in the end, I do think that Hedda was able to do a lot of good and the case did um, bring to light some things that are helping people to this day as far as knowledge. It was like the, the beginning, the first step to understanding the dynamics in um, domestic violence. And just, you know, for me, looking back, I mean, this was so long ago. I was a young woman then, and I'm not a young woman anymore. Um, and how much I've learned about domestic violence and about myself since then. So I, I would really, really like to know what your thoughts, if you've listened this long to this video and my thoughts, I, I really would love to know if you have any thoughts or insight on this case. If you do, you can send me an email at isurvivedchildhood dot, uh, at gmail.com. In the meanwhile, I do hope that everybody stays safe, and I will talk to you again. Thank you. Bye-bye.